all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome once again to the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is episode 187 of the SLS Cast. And it would be nothing less than naturally the most obvious choice because it's such a fun choice. And, you know, we're only going to get to do this once, right? Let me theoretically have this one 187th episode. So I have to go with it. It's the... It's basically the murder episode of the SLS guys, because according to the penal code, and it's various uh, states have it. It's not the same in every state, but thanks to good old NWA back in the 90s, we know that 187 in the California penal code is, of course, a murder. And what's interesting, or homicide, rather, I guess we should say, but what's interesting about the 187th statute is that it's the 187th one, which means they're in numerical order. And so you'd think that murder would be a little sooner on the list than 187. Like, they thought of 186 things before someone said, you know, we should probably throw murder up there. So... That's pretty interesting. And with that long way down roundabout news, I, of course, am Matt and coming to us all the way from sunny California, where hopefully he is feeling better. It is, of course, our Sony resident employee, Tim, the almost who who had to. So Matt, originally Matt was not going to be included in this week's episode of the SLS cast. And so I was planning on recording the opening of the show, and I have literally 15 different takes of me trying to pronounce Samuel L. Jackson's name with 187 directly right after it. So thank the movie gods you are here. (laughs) And by the way, it wasn't like you know, uh, like drama or anything. I just got stuck at work. Uh, as you guys know, uh, and ladies know, we record on Monday nights and uh, normally. And then, of course, this Monday was 4th of July. So in the States here, of course, we are uh, busy drinking and grilling and smoking and uh, lighting fireworks and all that good stuff. And so we naturally tried to move to Tuesday. And then I was having to recover because I actually got damn near heat stroke um on, on monday and i yeah i didn't even get to get hung over that was terrible um and then of course now i'm back and i'm back to normal and tim's feeling back to normal and then um i get stuck at work and so tim was like hey man we got we got to record this so we were literally going to try and do this like hodgepodge fucking thing and uh thankfully i was able to make it just in the nick of time and um, here we are, wasting three and a half more minutes telling you about <laughs> wasting how we were time. Wasting- <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're wasting time by telling you how we were possibly going to waste even more of your time. And then uh, we find out that the show is just a joke. It's all a dream. This show yeah. is <laughs> just like that's right. So we can do the Wayne's World thing. Anyway, so what did you do this weekend, Tim? Oh, I've done, I did a couple things. One of them being a, 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 what will turn out to be one of my most cherished memories. I attended at the Hollywood Bowl, Garrison Keylor's final appearance on 
a Prairie Home Companion. That is really cool. It was very sad. It was great. I mean, I I thought How it was. How can he do it in California though? I know he's at the Hollywood doing Bowl it too. In Minnesota. I mean, what the shit was that? I know he's from St. Paul. When I mean, even at the Grand Ole Opry or whatever the hell historic opera house there is in Tennessee, he could have done it there. I don't know, but. I gotta say, like, it was pretty moving. Uh, the show was significantly longer than uh, than what you hear on the radio, because normally on the radio it's two hours with, like, a ten-minute intermission, I suppose. The concert ran for well over two and a half hours, nearly three hours, and it ended with the most bittersweet goodbye to Garrison Keillor. He is very anti-saying goodbyes, as it turned out. And I haven't listened to the radio program. We missed it the next day when they were broadcasting it. But what he did is he had everybody at the Hollywood Bowl do a cappella singing to some, like, church, like, gospel songs. And Camp Town, was it Camp Town Ladies? I think it was Camp Town Ladies, or Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. And doing, like, all these acapella numbers and he'd finish one and people would start clapping and think it's over and then he would just go into another one then he'd go into another one and you could just tell at that moment that the the the, the curmudgeon of a man who never smiles <laughs> was actually kind of sad to see his show go and i really do hope in some way the actual broadcast performance captures that moment because it's absolutely Wonderful. It was super bittersweet. The jokes were funny. He did a whole thing on his limericks were great. Um, And the music, the tunes were pretty fun too. And it was a lovely evening at the Hollywood Bowl, especially. And I've never been to the Hollywood Bowl with so many people over the age of 65. It was crazy. (laughs) Like, it took double the time to exit the Hollywood Bowl because apparently when you get older, you spread out when you're in groups. Like, you're not all, like, I, I guess you want the space. So you spread out. You walk larger, I guess. So, yeah. What is your history with the Prairie Home? Do you listen to it often? Uh, I have not listened to it in the last mm, seven or eight months because I got wrapped up in my audiobooks and my podcasts. So um, I hadn't been as diligent about it. So I I knew um, actually about a year ago, year and a half ago, he started putting the... I guess the, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? The nail in the coffin? mechanisms. Well, no, oh. the mechanisms, I would say the mechanisms in place for his leaving and, um, having someone actually come in and host every once in a while with him there. Like he would be there and they would still have another host and stuff like that. Um, and I knew he was, it was, he was trying to, you know, retire and, um, and I just, you know, I always loved hearing his stories, you know, or, you know, like like I put up there, where all the women are strong and the men are good looking and the children are above average, you know, um, and uh, actually, I get where all the women are strong and the men are good looking and the children are above average, and you can never really hear him hear hear him say that because everybody's clapping over it, right. Right. And, uh, well, when you're listening to it, it's, I mean, I'm sure in the, when, when it's live, it's impossible, but thanks to the wonders of technology, they just kind of turn him up, (laughs) turn those levels up so you can hear it for the radio. And, um, I, I am, I am definitely saddened that he is there, but I'm glad, I mean, he's definitely had a long 
long career and he is the driving force behind that but good lord i mean i could never afford to go to the one of those things i was used to try and do the npr drives just so i could try and win a ticket to go because it was, it was just so 20 bucks oh shoot not here in houston it wasn't really yeah yeah what do they, they, what do they perform it at jones they do it at the uh the opera house don't they uh, don't they do it at the Wortham Center? The, the last place that they did it, it was like ridiculous. I mean, it was like $60 minimum for tickets. Oh, really? Yeah. So, because I always wanted to take Jen. Jen would always be like, what is this old-timey radio show? I was like, it's not an old-timey radio show. I swear to God. This thing is like, <laughs> like it's from 2016, right? So, anyways, but I am definitely glad one of us at least got to see it. So, good on you. Did you have fun for 4th of July? The 4th was fun in our sleepy little town of Mayberry that we live here, <laughs> nestled between Manhattan Beach and, <laughs> and the Los Angeles airport. We, we they actually have a free fireworks show for the families and the residents here. So after we ate, well, we had some friends come over and we walked a few blocks to the local little kids baseball park and we all kind of camped out there and watched a little fireworks show. Did you hear about the PBS broadcast of... The what was it? The national, the Washington D.C. fireworks show, where they didn't even show the real fireworks show. They just showed a compilation of all the fireworks shows from previous years. <laughs> <laughs> I saw, um, uh, I I saw the uh, stories coming up the next day that PBS was like apologizing for something or whatever, and I didn't know what it was for um, because, as you know, yesterday I was just busy trying to rest so i i was i wasn't aware it was that but i knew pbs had done something wrong so interesting uh myself i spent the whole day grilling and outside in the heat and and dying matt was slowly dying dying. slowly dying i not only was (laughs) i smoking um all I, i actually did smoked uh everything smoked hot dogs smoked uh cheeseburgers smoked uh pork chops smoked ribeyes smoked new york strips and um and the people were drooling and everything and my dad went absolutely insane and spent like four hundred dollars on fireworks Um, did you ask him about duck dodgers god damn it you know when he's going to be here you just need to text me and remind me (laughs) uh text me tomorrow um and i will make sure to text him and ask about it um, because no, in between all of the running around that we did and him actually, he actually got to take the girls out to go see Finding Dory on Saturday night. He had, I mean, he was just in hog heaven taking the kids out and letting them go run around and play and everything. Anyway, well, that was fun. That wasn't as disastrous as I thought it was going to be. No, 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 yeah, no, 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 no. And, and <laughs> how about if we segue into a little bit of the email? What do you say? Yes, 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 yes. Apparently he says yes. All right. Well, really quickly here, we have a couple of uh, new followers to mention on Twitter. Uh, of course, our Twitter handle for you to follow us, if you would like, is at the SLS cast. And it looks like uh, 1980s movie Graveyard, uh, which is at 80s MVE Graveyard, uh, which is a podcast about movies. So, hey, you know, there's that. That looks like they're following us now. So thank you there. And then a Grim Reality podcast is, is also following us. And that's at Captain, C-A-P-T-I-N, Creepy, K-R-E-E-P-I-E, uh, which is a real fun way to spell that stuff, is now following us. Anyway, 
Uh, let's see here. So, thank you very much for those follows, peeps. We always like to hear that stuff. And then for actual um, emails, where you two can send us an email to the show at slscast.com, we have our wonderful Diana who has sent us some email here. Let's see here. It's three emails in total. Uh, so I am just going to follow the flow here. Uh, they're not very long emails all told, but so we're just going to run through them here. And uh, basically we have the subject line, Seafood Part 1, Dory, Seafood Part 2, and then an addendum to Part 1 called Piper. So I'm just going to read them in order, and here we go. Hi, guys. I have to thank you for the lukewarm review of Dory. I went to see it last night and had low expectations, but hey, who can resist Pixar? I'm glad I was feeling jaded because it kept me from feeling let down. I read that Ellen DeGeneres was pushing for this sequel, and I'm thinking they threw it together to get her off their back. (laughs) Even for a, quote, uh, cartoon movie, end quote, it was so disjointed and unrealistic that I was like, really? The baby Dory voice got annoying after the first few awe scenes, and the forgetful ramblings from Dory got old, too. But the worst part was the dark scenes— all the being lost and ignored by all she tried to talk to while being lost without her family was gut-wrenching. What is it with Disney and making orphans? Pixar made a big mistake selling out to the dark castle with the rat. Shout out to the fra- to that fracking cat. On the positive side, it is a delight to take in all the colors and aquatic swaying of flora and fauna. I encourage anyone interested in seeing this to go to the big silver screen. Maybe wear earplugs to spare you the mod... The maudlin sadness. Best part, the sea lions. Fan forever, Diane Weeks, moving quickly into this stuff. Uh, the addendum here was, the short entitled Piper that's shown before Finding Dory is well worth the price of admission. Far superior to the main event. And last but not least, uh, so glad you took time to see The Lobster and enjoyed it. I gotta say, you did it justice and agree with your takes on it. The ending seemed abrupt and I remember saying, that's it? What I found impressive is how you could give such thorough reviews without giving much away at all. You guys could specialize in writing spoiler-free reviews. SLS cast could mean spoiler-less see for yourself cast. I was perplexed at why neither of you saw it as a horror flick, which it was dubbed, and deservedly so. Oh, and now I'm going to make popcorn and rewatch the original Independence Day, for which I'm fluffed for now. Thanks, guys. Hope your 4th of July weekend rocks. Um, all right. Well, there. so I'm glad I didn't... Um, I don't know. I guess... What do you think, Tim? Did you really feel that Lobster was... A horror movie? Mm, no, I just looked at it as a. I, mean, I kind of looked at it as a, like a dark. I mean, I don't know. I thought at, I know. at at worst it would be like a dark comedy or a dark dramedy, I guess. But yeah, um, no, I guess I didn't um, get any. I didn't even get any real horror vibes from that. So that's kind of that's kind of an interesting take, which is also which is the beauty of art. Maybe because... maybe maybe she meant horror. Whore, whore, a whore. <laughs> there are there are a couple whores in it. Could um, she mean a whore comedy, a whore movie? I, I am going. I'm going to go with uh, no. <laughs> but I guess that's again that's the beauty of art. Once it's out there, it's no longer what you intend it to be. It's what people take it as. So I guess um, Diana, if you're feeling froggy, you could let us know what what made you feel it was a, a horror movie. So. Awesome. All right. And then last but not least, Johnny, Johnny White Trash sends us the following subject. Email, email, what, what to email? And he says here, I always tell myself I'm going to email you guys. And now I've done that. What a relief. 
and that's his email. So thank you very much for that, Johnny. And according to Diana, apparently we have, uh, you and I, if nothing else, have much to discuss based on Finding Dory, uh, at the very least, and or the lobster. So that's that, and I think we can move directly to the news. What do you say? Yes, 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 yes. News, news, news. (laughs) Here we go, folks. It's the news. All right. And first up from me, uh, from SlashFilm.com. Uh, and this is, comes to us by way of Ethan Anderton. Peter Jackson working on a secret project for Steven Spielberg, and it's not Tintin 2. This winter, it will have been five years since Steven Spielberg teamed with Peter Jackson to bring Hergé's iconic, intrepid reporter to the big screen in The Adventures of Tintin. The motion capture performance film wasn't a massive hit in the United States, earning $77.5 million, but since the comic that inspire, inspired it is much more popular overseas, it pulled in $296 million from the rest of the world. That was enough for Jackson and Spielberg to make the next chapter in what they hoped would be a trilogy from the beginning. In the years since, though, updates have been hopeful, but without an evidence of a sequel actually coming together. Now, uh, there is slight update on the status of Adventures of Tintin 2. The good news is that Spielberg and Jackson still want to make the sequel, but the more interesting news is that Jackson is already working on a secret project for Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment. Uh, let's see here. Speaking with the New Zealand Herald via the playlist promoting this uh, this weekend's release of the BFG, Spielberg had this to say about his future collaborations with Peter Jackson. Quote, Peter was so busy with The Hobbit that it took him away from Tintin, and he's doing another film for my company now. It's a secret. Nobody knows about it. Then, after that, he'll do Tintin. Um, according to the article, there's really no indication from Spielberg what the project is, but you know, hey. Uh, so what do you think of that there, Tim? There's a little, there, there is still more to the article, and I would highly encourage you to go and check out the rest of that article if you want some more in-depth stuff into the speculation. Uh, and again, that's from SlashFilm.com. What do you think there, Tim? Any, any, any thoughts, speculation on the secret project? Or are you just glad that they do have Tintin in the, uh, Tintin 2 in the pipeline, officially? I'm just, I'm just waiting for Tintin and the Secret of the Unicorn, which should be Tintin 2. The first one is great. Uh, the animation is beautiful. The motion capture work was brilliant. And it was probably one of the best movies I saw in, what did it come out? The the tail end of 2011, I think. Uh, beginning of 2012. It's a brilliant movie. And I just cannot wait for the next one. Awesome. All right. Well, take it away, sir. All right. I'm going to do my first two pieces of news here. Um, a particular movie was shown in front of a children's movie. Not a particular movie, but a particular trailer was shown in front of the kids film Finding Dory. And I'm not going to give away the title of this article because it'll just spoil it. But via the Bay Area News It says this, they were expecting to see Finding Dory, but instead saw the horrific trailer for a R-rated animated film. The mistake led to the viewing of 
the Sausage Party trailer for the PG crowd in, uh, crowd in mid-June at Brendan Theater in Concord. Sausage Party is a movie about one sausage leading a group of supermarket products on a quest to discover the truth about their existence and what really happens when they become chosen to leave the grocery store. Quote, playing that trailer was a one-time honest mistake by a theater manager moving screens around in an effort to accommodate several large last-minute groups wanting to see Finding Dory. The wrong movie was started by mistake, end quote, said Walter Eichner, vice president of operations for Brennan Theater Corporation, quote, Our movies are now started and stopped by computer and a click of a mouse. We moved a couple of screens to a larger house to accommodate some walk-up groups over a very, very, very busy Dory weekend. In the rush, one hard-working manager clicked the wrong movie. It was caught soon, but not until the trailer was played. We regret it, apologize for it, and we are not happy that it happened. We fully recognize that this trailer is not appropriate for Dory, and we would never schedule something like that. End quote, says Eichner. <laughs> I remember back when I was in daycare, so a young Tim, a very young Tim in the rural suburbs of Houston, Texas. We were taking taken to that old Tomball Three Screen Theater in Tomball, Texas, to go see Muppet Treasure Island. So this was in what, ninety four, ninety five or something like that, ninety three, ninety four, ninety five. And so we're sitting there and we're watching Muppet Treasure Island or wanting to watch Muppet Treasure Island. We're ready to get into it and get some Tim Curry action. And then all of a sudden, these very adult oriented movies pop up. And all of a sudden, the movie Broken Arrow with Christian Slater and uh, and Hairpiece. I forget his name now. John Travolta started playing. And it was awesome. Awesome. When you're that age and a movie, an R-rated movie as bitchin' as that comes on, you just kind of like shit your pants a little while. But of course the movie theater caught it and it went on, but I remember nothing was said about it. You know, none of our parents got pissed off. Our daycare, uh, you know, uh, attendants or daycare looker outers or watcher, whatever they're called, you know, they didn't get mad. Nobody was complaining. It was just looked as a, oh shit, we, we, you know, it was an issue. Now, in this article, they don't mention if it was the red band trailer or the PG or, you know, the, the green band trailer, I should say. So if it was the green band trailer, people should just shut the hell up and just deal with it. Red band trailer is something else, I suppose. The worst thing that they're going to see in the green band trailer of Sausage Party is a poor potato getting its skin sliced off and it reacting to it in a very comedic Pixar way. Matt, what do you think? Do you think if your children saw this, would you be up in arms about what they're witnessing? Having actually been in this situation once when I was actually 12, um, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate thing, but good lord, it was an accident, so... No, I wouldn't care. I would just be like, all right, let's go figure out something else and we'll be good. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and that article was Concord Movie Theater apologizes for showing Sausage Party trailer for Finding Dory Crowd via the Bay Area News com. And I'm going to move on over to this article from ARS Technica.com or Ars Technica. 
I don't think it's Ars Technica, but ARS Technica. IMAX will build you a home theater starting at 400,000 buckaroonies. This includes dual 4K 2D 3D projectors, proprietary IMAX sound, and media playback. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is right. If you have about 400k to spare, IMAX's private theater division will now build an IMAX cinema setup in your own home. The entry-level IMAX private theater is the Palace, or Palais, Palace. I don't speak French, P-A-L-A-I-S, Palais, Palais, I don't know, which starts at around 300 thousand pounds for a screening room with up to 18 seats for your money you get dual 4k 2d 3d projectors a proprietary imax sound system and a media playback system that supports everything you might want to throw at it which are you know tv games blu-ray etc no word on the exact specifications of the projectors but they're probably not imax with laser Screen size will vary depending on the setup, but generally they will be 3 meters, 10 feet tall, or more. Stepping up to the Platinum IMAX Home Theater, Matt, I know you are a you know Platinum guy, a Platinum type of guy, you want the best thing. Uh, if you want that Platinum Theater, that'll cost you about a million bucks. That'll get you a much larger screening room with space for up to 40 people. The IMAX website doesn't break out the specs of the Platinum setup, but presumably it's similar to the Palais, or Palais, uh, French. Both the Palais and the Platinum models come with automatic daily self-calibration to ensure optimal picture in audio setup, 24-7 remote monitoring, whatever that means in the context of home theaters, and of course, the design and architecture of the room itself is so exquisite that your friends will think you have great taste, if that was ever in doubt. And the article does go on from there if you want to read about uh, what you'll never get ever installed into your home ever unless you win big or are very successful i don't know matt would you ever purchase an imax private home theater for your home i mean if i won like the mega millions jackpot i might (laughs) i mean come on the i would probably go ahead and get a house that i would never move out of and um if that's the case then why not have the truly ultimate worthwhile movie watching experience so that would be but that would be like the only circumstance i could think of sorry kids you're not going to have a bedroom because that's where my imax screen is going to go (laughs) that's right you sleep in the garage indeed all right well let's see here this is my last piece of news here uh from little white lies is the website and that's lwl actually lwlies.com and this comes to us by way of uh, Ewan Hosey. So I apologize if I have messed that up. And it says here, All in the Reflexes, the kick-ass legacy of Big Trouble in Little China. And this is a wonderful little article here, so I'm only going to read little selections of it because I would like for you to read. It's just an op-ed, and I would like for you to read the whole thing if you are down with the Big Trouble in Little China action. But, uh, yeah. Made at the peak of John Carpenter's creative powers, Big Trouble in Little China arrived in U.S. theaters in July 1986 to little fanfare. Despite not being a commercial success upon its initial release, the film eventually found an appreciative fan base via the booming home video market. Today, on its 30th anniversary, it remains a firm cult favorite. Uh, There are even plans for a big-budget remake starring Dwayne Johnson. 
Uh, let's see here. The story follows obtuse truck driver Jack Burton, played by Kurt Russell, and his Chinese-American friend Wang Chi, Dennis Dunn, as they become embroiled in a dangerous and underground cult led by a 2,000-year-old sorcerer named David Lo Pan played by James Hong. Wang's fiancée, Miao Yin, Susie Pai, uh, played by Susie Pai, is kidnapped by a street gang called the Lords of Death while he and Jack wait for her at the airport. As they pursue the kidnappers, they get caught in the middle of a Chinese gang war in San Francisco's Chinatown, where Jack's beloved big rig, the Pork Chop Express, gets stolen. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's not the whole plot either. <laughs> that's just how it gets warmed up. Uh, but let's see here. Um, moving along, uh, just another little part of it here. As with Carpenter's The Thing before it, Big Trouble's Creature Effects Freakery shows off the talents of a filmmaker at the top of his game. The Sewer Ogre, The Eye of the Beholder-esque Guardian, Thunder, Thunder's Me, Morthy Demise, and the undead Lopan himself are a fitting tribute to the outlandish Chinese tradition of Zhang Shi cinema, while the fight choreography provides an equally reverent take on Wu Jia. Uh, Sui Hark's 1983 film Zoo Warriors from The Magic Mountain is a clear influence on Carpenter in this regard, and he successfully managed to replicate its heady mix of optical effects, pyrotechnics, and wire work. Incidentally, according to Carpenter, many of Big Trouble's more impressive aerial acrobats, uh, acrobatics were accomplished simply with trampolines. Uh, and then, just to close out this wonderful little article here, Carpenter could always get the best out of Russell. Big Trouble was the fourth collaborate, collaboration following Elvis, Escape from New York, and The Thing, and Jack Burton remains one of the pair's most enduring creations. Car, uh, Carpenter may have had more important films, but Big Trouble in Little China is easily his most entertaining. If for whatever reason you've never been compelled to give it a try, you do well to heed Burton's advice. Old Jack always says, what the hell? And that is very true when it comes to this movie. And believe me, I only read... Uh, three, uh, three of the like eight or nine paragraphs here. Um, just to give you a taste of both the article and the movie. If you've never seen this movie, I thoroughly enjoy this movie. I love it. I'm definitely in the, the cult fan fandom of this film. And there is even for those of you who do any kind of tabletop gaming, uh, I just found out today there's even a legendary tabletop game that's going to be about Big Trouble in Little China. So, holy crap. Gift ideas for Matt. Just saying. What do you think, Tim? Uh, I, I'm pretty sure we have discussed this film at some point, and you were not really all that impressed with it, if I recall. I'm not, I, mean, I, I used think... to be, until uh, about literally a year ago, I rewatched it with uh, a friend of mine, and I kind of fell in love with it. I used to not like, I forget her name, it's the, the woman in it. Kim Cattrall? Kim Cattrall, like I, for some reason, I had a thing about her voice and her voice being so whiny in that movie, it just annoyed the shit out of me. But then I realized that's kind of the point of the movie. It's supposed to be over the top and just kind of out there on purpose. And that's why the movie is so enjoyable is because everybody is in on it and it's just great fun. And I didn't realize that the first couple times I saw it. And then since then, I've seen it a couple more times, uh, and I I enjoy it ever ever since. I've enjoyed it ever since, so yeah. I I thoroughly enjoy it. It's great.
Yay. All right. And again, please check that out. Uh, the site is Little White Lies, and that's LWLies.com. Uh, the article, again, written by Ewan Hosey. Um, and that's all my news. Bring us home on the news, sir. All right. I have a few more pieces of news here. First up, via Yahoo Movies, Gone with the Wind star Olivia de Havilland talks with people on her 100th birthday. And I'm not just saying she's talking with random people, but I'm talking about People magazine. And this, I, 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 for one thing, shame on me for not knowing this before, but I had no idea that she was already 100 years old. I've seen pictures of her in the past. Uh, I've come across interviews that she's given from like 2012, and she looks just fine, and she sounds great. She's still able to recall memories of working with Clark Gable and working with, um, oh shit, who played the original Robin Hood in Adventures of Robin Hood? Earl Flynn. In Earl Flynn. She has great stories about Earl Flynn, who fell, uh, she fell in love with him, and later he fell in love with her, with her. An absolutely fascinating woman who came to her own during the golden age of Hollywood, when Hollywood was in its studio-controlled heyday, and it's her stories are absolutely wonderful. Uh, but this article here, born in Japan of English parentage, naturalized and raised in Los Angeles, De Havilland has been an internationally recognized film star for over eight decades. Since her 1935 debut in A Midsummer's Night's Dream and eight on-screen romances with Errol Flynn, she's been slapped around by Betty Davis in Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte, and starred in Lady in a Cage with James Caan in opposite Montgomery Clift in The Harris. Probably best known for her role as the sweet Melanie Wilkes in Gone with the Wind, now de Havilland says she is, quote, honored, end quote, to be called the last star of Hollywood's golden age. De Havilland, who has lived for over 60 years in Paris in a little white house as tall and narrow as a chimney, says she is, quote, content with the role that life has given me, a centrarian, end quote, asked if there's any advice she'd give to her younger self, and she replies, quote, take a long leave of absence from the Warner contract and go to Mills College, where the scholarship I had won in 1934 is still waiting for me, end quote. In her exceptionally frank back and forth, Hollywood's most elegant legend discusses many aspects of her personal and professional life, her friends' fabled romances, they're not whom you expect, and touched on a number of her film roles, including two surprising classics, She Turned Down, It's a Wonderful Life, and A Streetcar Named Desire. The article does go on from there. Uh, there's a handful of paragraphs left. Apparently, the issue of People magazine, which will include the full interview with Haviland, will come out sometime next week, I believe. So look forward to that. I think it's going to be a fantastic piece of literature to read and enjoy. In fact, if you can't wait for the People magazine to come out, go on YouTube, type in her name, and there are just so many interviews with her. And it's just absolutely fantastic to listen to everything from her romances with movie stars like Errol Flynn to her struggle with Warner Brothers and wanting to get out of her contract with Warner Brothers. It, it's just absolutely fantastic. And the woman, man, she knows how to carry herself in speech a hell of a lot better than I can, for sure. So do check it out. Again, yahoomovies.com. Gone with the Wind star Olivia de Havilland talks with people on her 100th birthday. 
Next up is a passing via io9.com, RIP Noelle Neal, the first live-action Lois Lane. Noelle Neal, the first actress to ever portray intrepid Daily Planet reporter Lois Lane on the big screen, has passed away at the age of 95 following a long illness. Neal's father wanted his daughter to become a reporter, but she instead turned to show business, appearing in minor roles in movies throughout the 1940s. In a roundabout fashion, she fulfilled her father's dream when she starred alongside uh, alongside Kirk Allen in 1948's Superman, a 15-part movie serial that marked the Man of Steel's first-ever live-action adaptation. Neil would return to the role alongside Allen once more two years later in Adam Man vs. Superman. Following the serials... Neil continued her association with Lois Lane through the 1952 television series The Adventures of Superman with George Reeves in the title role. Lois was played by Phyllis Coates for the first season of the show, but had to pull out and Neil replaced her until the show came to an end in 1958. Uh, If you want to read more about this, do check out io9.com, R.I.P. Noelle Neil, the first live-action Superman, or first live-action Superman, first live-action Lois Lane, who appeared in the first live-action Superman serial. And I believe uh, there is even more about this via thehollywoodreporter.com. Matt, you're a big fan of Highlander, aren't you? Well, I am a big fan of the first one. Um, and, I I mean, the third one was okay. And then I liked most of the TV series back in the 90s. But having just recently rewatched the director's cut on Blu-ray, <laughs> I enjoy it because I feel I must. <laughs> of the original Highlander. Yes. What's what's so goofy about the director's cut? There's just no way to explain it. You just you you pretty much just have to watch it. And also because it's been literally so incredibly cleaned up because of the Blu-ray and everything. Um <laughs> You can see the wires everywhere. Um, you can see the continuity errors. They're so bad. You can see safety rigging on people. Um, yeah. Uh, I, w- I would say keep this one fondly in the memory banks and only watch it on DVD. Or VHS. <laughs> or VHS. Even better. If you, can get, like, if you could get a DVD cut of the VHS, <laughs> you're probably in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what do you got there, sir? Well, there's probably a reason why, uh, why, why you noticed all that stuff in the Blu-ray release. Because via TheGuardian.com, how we made Highlander, Connery opened his homemade whiskey on the plane. That is the title of this article via The Guardian. And I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs here. And I think this will better explain, you know, why, why, why this movie was so cheap looking now. We shot fast in Scotland, London, and New York. The budget was just $13 million, so it was guerrilla-style filmmaking. When we were in Glencoe, the producer had to run down the mountain with a pocket of change to call the studio from a phone box. On the plane up, Sean brought out a bottle of homemade scotch a friend had given him. Come on, laddie, he said. Have a nip of this. It just blew my brains out. 
When Sean and Clancy Brown, who plays the villain, had their first big fight, Clancy was meant to burst in and slice the table in half with his sword, but he struck it with the flat of the blade and broke it, a shard shot over Sean's head. He was on the verge of walking. He put on his dressing gown and called a meeting, Clancy said, quote, I'm so sorry, I was so nervous because it's Sean Connery, end quote. Sean was gracious, but said, quote, Maybe we'll use my stunt double more, end quote. In another shot, Sean Connery and Clancy are climbing some steps and a wall just breaks up and falls away. We did that by having a load of guys with fishing lines attached to each stone. On the count of three, they pulled the rocks down. The sky behind was a painted backdrop you'd normally see in an opera. It was a one-take affair. It would have taken all day to set it up again. (laughs) And lastly, it was my first time in Scotland. Uh, This is Christopher Lambert speaking. It was my first time in Scotland. Insurance people completely forbid drinking on set. But try that up there and you'll get shot. I'm not saying Scottish people drink all the time, but if they drink, they drink. It's not a sip of wine. It's a quarter of a bottle of scotch. There were 1,000 extras for the battle scene and they went at it for real. Each shot after shot, the cries went up, Doctor, nurse, they yelled. End all quotes there. (laughs) And again, if you want to read more of these little anecdotes made by Russell Malaki, the director, Christopher Lambert, the lead actor, do check it out via The Guardian, How We Made Highlander, Connery Opened His Homemade Whiskey on the Plane. End all quotes there. I'll just go ahead and uh, end, my, end my movie news there. All right. Well, then we will drift right into our bonus segment this week, which is Copycat Throwdown. It's, it's the, the copy Copycat copy Throwdown. Throwdown. That's right. It's the Copycat Throwdown. Well, that's right. It's the Copycat Throwdown. Stop it. Stop Stop it. No, no, seriously. Stop it. Oh, right. Like, stop repeating? Stop repeating. Right. Oh, uh, okay. I'm going to kick your ass. ass. Throw down time. Yes. All right, so this week we are doing the ultimate summer blockbusters, Armageddon from 1998 and Deep Impact from 1998. Are we on? Are we on? We're on, Mr. President. A few minutes ago, the United States ambassadors to every country in the world told the leaders of those nations what I'm about to tell you. The comments are still headed for Earth. Now, we've been planning for the worst, so I hope you'll bear with me and listen to what I have to say. To ensure the continuation of our way of life, we've been preparing a network of immense caves, and we can put a million people in them, underground, for two years. On August 10th, we're going to hold a national lottery. A computer will randomly select 800,000 Americans to join the 200,000 scientists, teachers, soldiers, and artists who have already been chosen. In addition, the United States and Russia have been building the largest spaceship ever constructed 
to stop the comets. We will prevail. Life will go on. Life is short. I love you. Love is forever. Will you marry me? Gracie grew up to become a full-blown hottie. You're talking about my little girl, all right? But you never know what the future holds. Until it hits. It's a meteor shower. This new one you're tracking. How big? It's what we call a global killer. Nothing would survive, not even bacteria. The United States government just asked us to save the world. Anybody want to say no? You think we'll get hazard pay out of this? They'll do it. They've made a few requests, though. Such as? Oscar here has got some outstanding parking tickets. Uh, Max would like you to bring back eight-track tapes. Not sure if that's going to work. Yeah, one more thing. Um, none of them want to pay taxes again. Ever. United States astronauts train for years. You have 12 days. You stick that in me, I'm going to stab you in the heart with it. On July 1st. Tell me you've never let anybody down before. I never quit yet. How's that? Earth's darkest day. How you feeling? Good. Considering I've never been this scared in my entire life. Will be man's finest hour. I'm marrying you. You bet you are. <laughs> Bruce Willis. Billy Bob Thornton. Liv Tyler. Ben Affleck. Will Patton. Steve Buscemi. Whoa! This is so much fun, it's freaking! All the time in the world. We have 18 minutes to zero barrier. He's all they've got. We all gotta die, right? I'm the guy who gets to do a save in the world. Yeah! We can stick up on a cliff! We never quit! It is my father! I love you! Armageddon. A Jerry Bruckheimer production, directed by Michael Bay. Now, uh, these are both about a comet um, that are that, that is on its way to Earth, or uh, I guess maybe comets even that are on their way to Earth uh, that could literally destroy life as we know it. Um, and how the world or the U.S. or whoever would get would come together to send astronauts into space to combat said asteroid uh, or meteor or what have you. Now, by far and away, the bigger, flashier version is Armageddon, but the more serious and high road. An intellectual version would be Deep Impact. And honestly, at the end of the day, it's really whichever side you land on um, in terms of what you want out of your blockbusters uh, that will more than likely determine where you land on this. Uh, for me, I mean, I am fully capable of, of understanding that on a purely objective level, Deep Impact was better done in terms of better dialogue, um, better characters, and 
a more realistic approach to how the world um, and the community at large would deal with something like this. But for me, it's slow and um, it just lacks oomph. Okay. Um, now, in this particular instance, for me, Armageddon, uh, because it's flashier, because it is simply explosions, I think it's just, I, I think I have to say it's more or less when Michael Bay did it right. Right? Not when everything was lens flare and explosion, but just about. And he, he was, he still was reined in a little bit. Uh, I think, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer had a lot to do with that. And so you get, um, I don't know, you just get a better ride for me out of Armageddon than you do out of Deep Impact. Now, I wish there had been way, some way to meld these two movies together, but I mean, enough people really went and saw both that it doesn't matter. Um, Armageddon had the had the bigger budget, nearly twice the budget of Deep Impact. Um, but uh, but Armageddon also superior was the superior money earner uh, for them. But percentage of gross compared to budget. About the same, maybe even Deep Impact probably came a little bit of it, uh, a little bit ahead. For me, though, the flash in the pan got to me, and even after re, you know looking into these again many years later, I haven't seen either of these movies in at least ten years. Um, I, I get that there's better writing and there's better characters and a more realistic approach to Deep Impact. It's just nowhere near as fun. And that is why, and it is on the strength of it being fun, that, uh, for me, Armageddon wins. So, I say Armageddon. Tim! Can you please rewatch Armageddon and come back to us next week with your thoughts? Because I went back and... Oh, you did? That's what I was saying. I went and watched both the movies again. Oh. That's why why I fully maintain... The better writing, the better characters are all in Deep Impact. But the movie, but for me, Deep Impact is re- just dull. It's so slow. You're literally just waiting for, you're like waiting for the people to die. I literally was happy when Leone said, hey, let's stand on the beach, Dad. I was happy. Okay. Well, the thing with, <laughs> what I really liked about Deep Impact is that it has the characters and it, it makes it, it makes the attempt to have it mean something, you know, and it resonates more with me when you actually feel bad for the characters and you feel bad for the world, uh, possibly coming to an end. And I didn't feel that with Armageddon on. It was, I mean, people say that deep impact is the melodramatic one. Fuck that. Armageddon on. Armageddon is the most melodramatic of the two in the tr- cheesiest of the two. It's just a bad movie. I remember when I went to see it, go see it when it first came out in 98, 99. I, I watched it, and the movie in some way kind of made an impression on me. I was young and dumb, and I just, at the time, I thought, well, you know, if you're being force-fed all this crazy action and force-fed all this stupid relationship shit and, you know, and, and the struggle between the the father and the daughter, that by the end of the movie, I should really care about these people. 
And then watching it again this past week, I realized that was not the case. But with Deep Impact, at the end, the tearjerker with the people on this on the rocket, there just I, I don't want to spoil it for any of you who haven't seen it yet or even plan to see it yet. There are these moments, excellent nuanced moments in Deep Impact that still resonated with me when I rewatched it. Were there cornier things that I picked up on now that I didn't pick up on in the late 90s? Yeah, for sure, most definitely. The movie is not perfect by any means. But I still think it's a it's a good movie. With Armageddon, you had dialogue like, Drilling is a science. It's an art. That's what Bruce Willis says about drilling. And we are to believe that Bruce Willis is the world's greatest driller? <laughs> And Bruce Willis is the only person to train people to work on a space drill. It's it's ridiculous. It's crazy. I mean, the guy was able to wield a shotgun on a rig without any legal issues whatsoever. He was trying to sh- kill Ben Affleck, and yet they still want him to drill into the asteroid to blow it up. You know, he's able to run around and, and then compliment AJ by asking him to be a part of the team once the movie starts getting going a little bit. He has to assemble the team. All of a sudden, he's good friends with Ben Affleck's character. He doesn't care that Ben Affleck is trying to be with his daughter. But no, he he now understands. He didn't realize this when he was about to shoot him with the shotgun. He now understands that he is a good drill guy, and we really need him. The, the world could use him now, even though he's porking my daughter. And it's a lot of little bitty things, like the oil rig team was able to retrofit the space armadillo rig with no no, no help from any of the trained space engineers or anything like that. And also the oil crew, the you know, the drill crew, seemed very gung-ho about the space trip until it was time for them to go up there, and they were still gung-ho about it, but that's kind of when it set in. It was kind of weird. The movie was comprised of moments and stylized shots and edits to evoke forced emotion. And that's my big thing. You have how the movie is cut and all these moments, how the camera is looking at Bruce Willis in a close-up as he's dramatically looking off to the side, when Ben Affleck's AJ and Bruce Willis's daughter, uh, Liv Tyler, is doing their little animal cracker you know, thing with that music playing in the background. So, you, so it's kind of like forewarning you that something bad is going to happen and it's probably going to ruin their relationship or affect the relationship in some way. All of that is forced and stuff like that is in the entire movie in every aspect. You know, everybody just says the right things at the right moments with ease. So pretty much the film's character, story, and groundwork, the the character and story groundwork, I should say, is unstable and hokey because it takes itself a little too seriously. Now, if, if Armageddon was more of like a, you know, John Carpenter schlock film where it was just out to have fun. You know, we're not going to try to try to trick the audience into emotions and just let things just happen. Let the fun happen and let everything, uh, all the secondary stuff to happen organically. I think the movie would have been much better. And it worked with Deep Impact because Deep Impact is a dramatic film. Really, it's not an apocalyptic film because... The apocalyptic stuff doesn't happen until the last 
10 minutes of the movie, the last 15 minutes of, of the movie, when the actual action kind of happens. This is, I mean, other than what the space crew has to deal with earlier on in the movie. But the movie is only two hours compared to Armageddon, which is two and a half hours. So it's definitely more of a drama and more of a character story, character-driven, than it is action and story-driven. So that is why I choose Deep Impact over Armageddon on all right, well, that is going to conclude our bonus segment for this week. And next week, we're actually just going to take it easy and not have a bonus segment. So that's that's you know because it's a bonus, right? And if you you know if if you if we constantly just provide this bonus all the time, then it just kind of becomes a regular segment. So no bonus segment next week. And now we will come to. The movie. And this week's movie slash z is slash r BFG and the Legend of Tarzan. Um, unfortunately. In regards to the Legend of Tarzan, Tim caught the black lung pop and um, was unable to watch it. Do you know what my grandmother calls Tarzan? I do not know what your grandmother calls Tarzan. 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 Interesting. I got my grandson some Tarzan DVDs. (laughs) Tarzan. Nice. All right. So do you want me to just knock out the Tarzan Right, knock, knock, knock it out. I hear. I heard you loved it. Oh yes, I loved it so very, very much that um, I gave it a two. All right, let's see here. Legend of Tarzan is a 2016 American action adventure film. It's based on the fictional character, of course, created by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And this film is directed by David Yates and stars Alexander Skarsgård, Samuel Jackson, Margot Robbie, Jimon uh, Honsu. Uh, uh, Jim Broadbent and Christoph Waltz. Uh, this, of course, is the rehash of the, the literal Legend of Tarzan, right? Lord Greystoke, who, uh, was, who, who was orphaned by his parents in the Congo and raised by um, gorillas. And there you go. This one has him, of course, battling um, evil Belgian slave drivers. In search of diamonds and whatnot. Um, all right. So, I, I feel really bad do, um, the, because it seemed like there was there were some desperate attempts to, um, uh, I don't know, recreate Django Unchained because with just to get Christoph Waltz and Samuel Jackson back together again. I'm not, it just, I don't know. I felt some really weird vibes there, but here's the thing. Like the CGI is CGI. I I won't say it was terrible, but like it wasn't approaching X-Men terrible, but it was a little better than Avengers um, or Captain America Civil War rather. So, you could you could still tell and it was i don't know i just it was hard to buy in on the cgi but it wasn't terrible what really holds this movie back is the pacing 
is the story itself that it's trying to tell. Not that it, not that people everywhere are bored to death with remake after remake, because at least this is one of those things where not everybody is really fully familiar with it. Um, so uh, it hasn't been done to death, a la Batman or Superman remakes or what have you. So I, so I get it, but it just doesn't want to be cohesive and it wants to have this kind of disparate method of bringing these various story elements together but it just kind of falls flat because of the way it was edited i guess but also because the the pacing the the way that the actors behave on screen together they're not quite wooden but they're not quite alive either and it just causes scenes to drag and i just i mean i can't i can't say it any more succinctly than that it's just dull it's slow it's so slow and the cgi doesn't promote enough buy-in to sit there and have you go oh look how beautiful it is and look how i can get lost in this because i think that's what it's banking on is that you're just going to get so lost in all of the effects and everything that's going on that you don't really realize that it's taking too long so um i don't know what it is about poor edgar rice burroughs but he has just not been getting the good treatment in the last five or six years between this and John Carter. So, um, but I mean, it's not a terrible movie. There's just nothing. Um, I hate to use the term, but I'm going to have to, I apologize, Johnny. It's, it's a, it's a popcorn flick at best. If you just sit back and relax and, you know, don't try to think about it and don't expect to get anything for the time of your investment. You might enjoy it, um, but not for me. Two stars. And that's all I have to say about that. So so it's, I, a, it's an early bird special type of movie. Yes. If you can hit it up on whatever your local, uh, you know, cinema place, Cinemaplex, whatever, um, has a discount day or the matinee show, do that. Just just do that. Um, and then I guess we're just down to BFG, right? BFG. Oh. <laughs> I, was, I was trying to come up with something more clever to say, but yes. Yeah. Yeah, that would be that would be the next and last flick. <laughs> All right, uh, and B, the BFG is a 2016 American fantasy adventure film, uh, directed, produced by Steven Spielberg, written by Melissa Matheson, and it's based on the 1982 novel uh, by Ronald Dahl. Uh, this is also not the first time that this film has been made. Uh, it is the most recent attempt. I want to say there was a 1989 version. I think um, I have not seen that. I have not read the book either. Uh, so I think that there are probably things in the book that, uh, or elements in the movie that if you've read the book, you would probably notice. Uh, the, the film stars, uh, Mark Rylance, Ruby Barnhill, Penelope, Win uh, Wilton, uh, Jermaine Clement, Rebecca Hall, Rafe Spale, and Bill Hader. Um, and I did really, really like Jermaine Clement in this film. So that's really cool, I must say. Um 
So, I guess the question of is where 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 do I land on this movie? All right, I was encouraged to see this movie in three D. I took uh, so I grabbed the kids and we went and saw the movie yesterday morning. Um, and not on not just discount day, but the first showing of discount day, mind you, and. I, get, I mean, the 3D isn't bad. It's very immersive, I suppose, which is nice because it's natural and everything. But I didn't really feel like it added anything to it. So on that note, I was kind of like feeling like the extra three bucks didn't really do it for me. Um, I My wife felt the same way. The kids didn't seem to mind one way or the other. They thought it was great. You know, they They, they really enjoyed the movie. But... Here's what I have the problem with when it comes to this movie. Um, I have a really, really big problem with Ruby Barnhill. Because I truly felt like she was a poor actress. Um, She's a cute kid. And I believe that she was earnest in her performance. But I just felt like she was trying way too goddamn hard. And it didn't come naturally as a precocious child but as someone more or less who was screaming to get her way whenever she was trying to really be um, assertive or really trying to dominate where the character of Sophie would dominate um now Mark Rylance on the other hand definitely a very nice uh, d- does a very good job of bringing BFG to life. Um, but the movie, okay, uh, Willy Wonka, right? The Chocolate Factory with Gene Wilder. And if you think about that movie, like most people, when they watched that movie, they watched it when they were kids. Uh, and they were just pulled into this beautiful, whimsical world. There, uh, 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 First you get this like orphan-esque type character or down-on-their-luck, very uh, downtrodden character, but at the same time, heart of gold, right? And then they get pulled into this whimsical world of just beautiful fantasy and everything, and and their goodness shines through to the very end. And it's very engaging for kids, but most people who were adults at the time were kind of, and went and saw it, and the movie did not do well in theaters, were kind of like, wow, this movie's really slow, and it's dull, and it doesn't really bring anything to the fore in terms of um, being memorable in terms of performance. And BFG suffers from that very same issue. It's not that the movie is bad. It is not a bad movie. It's just very slow in getting started. And by the time it does get going, and you really are fully interjected into this world of whimsy, and you get the contrast of the evil big bad giants uh, led by uh, Flesh Lump Eater, who is, again, voiced by Jermaine Clement. Fantastic, fantastic job, by the way. Um it's just it's not enough to bring you as a critical adult engaging into it now again i think that people who are diehard fans of the book 
I think they will definitely get more out of this, and I think it's more of a love letter to those people, and I think it's a great family film. But um, it's just not... Um, it's just not a world-class endeavor. Um, it's not the best that it could have been. I think that either it needed to be shorter or they needed to make some more creative edits to kind of punch up the drama or to punch up the action between BFG, who who actually, he finds, I mean, we've got a little girl here, Sophie, she's an orphan, she gets taken by the BFG to giant land, and we find that while he's a giant, uh, the big friendly giant, as it were, he's still the runt of the giants. And I think that there's a lot more interplay that could have happened, that could have been there. Um, again, it's enough for kids, but not enough for adults. And I, I think if you're expecting this movie to be on the level of Finding Dory, which I I could see where like the CGI and stuff would definitely be much, much better than the animation style and stuff that you find from Finding Dory. Um, it's just not engaging enough. Uh, I give this one 2.75 out of 5. Uh, again, please, it is not a bad movie. It's just, it's too long, takes too long to get going, and even though the whimsy and the fantasy is beautiful, it's just not enough to be captivating. So, 2.75 out of 5. Bring us home there, Tim. Well, that's a fair review. Uh, I, I mean, I would have to say that I absolutely loved the 3D. Yes, I was the one that told Matt to waste his money on the, the extra 3D. Uh, the 3D for this movie reminded me of of the, uh, the uh, of Hugo, the movie Hugo, Hugo Cabret, the Martin Scorsese 3D kids family film that he came out with in uh, 2011, and it also reminded me of the wonderfully immersive 3D of The Adventures of Tintin. Yes, uh, not a lot of stuff it, like pops out of you, pops out of the screen at you, which a lot of people associate 3D with. It's immersive. You are t- being taken into the movie. You see beautiful depth. Sometimes characters appear closer than normal, than usual, than what you'd expect. But then you see something moving in the background that just blends together wonderfully. And it's probably some of the best 3D I've seen all this year. Um, I I would even say it's significantly better than The Jungle Book. Uh, And The Jungle Book, I thought, had some impressive 3D moments. So yes, this movie, I think, is worth the extra 3D surcharge. It's a Spielberg movie that, that at times, at best, it sometimes feels like a Spielberg movie. But I'm with Matt as well. The, the pacing of this movie is a little slow. At first, it's not so bad. I think when, it's once you get up to the midway point when the story should be kicking in and the action should be kicking in, the characters should move on to the next thing, that's when you would expect the movie to start kind of picking up its pace a little bit and maybe move on to something a little different. But it doesn't. It kind of keeps doing, uh, do, doing uh, much of the same stuff. And eventually it leads up to the climactic conclusion. And even the climactic conclusion doesn't even feel climactic or like a conclusion. It just kind of happens. And unfortunately the movie lasks, uh, lasks, lacks the Spielberg whimsical action and carry through, carry through that we've all come to know and love with Spielberg's movies, even with Tintin, The Adventures of Tintin. That has wonderful action and wonderful nuanced 
action moments. And this movie has, from a dramatic standpoint, from a performance standpoint, from a character relationship standpoint, the movie nails it. It's perfect. But once the bigger stuff come into play, once the once the struggle between the cannibal, the cannibal <laughs> of, of giants, that's when the movie for me kind of falls apart. And it felt like Spielberg really didn't know whether if he should have too much fun with it or not. Again, the movie is absolutely gorgeous to look at. Uh, it's a very easy film that's incredibly kid friend, uh, incredibly kid friendly, but I think unfortunately that's what in a way bogs it down. It's unforgettable or unforgettable. The animation is unforgettable, but the movie itself is forgettable. Um, even the diehard Spielberg fan would probably buy this movie, but keep it on the shelf for a period of time. Um, I'd be interested in purchasing it at some point. Just to watch the behind-the-scenes features, because I'm sure the, the 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 documentary featurettes or whatever would be uh, you know worth the time to check out. So if you have a kid, go go. You know you gotta watch it. Uh, or or feel free to take them and not have to worry about any violence or language or anything like that. Uh, unless you're completely disgusted by farting, I guess. I mean, there there are some very tasteful fart jokes, very tasteful fart jokes, that I've never wanted to hug somebody after they farted with joy. <laughs> Except you, Matt. You, you to me, you are the only human being I like to hug because of your farts of pure joy. I can't, I can't help it. It's just the bubbles always go the wrong way. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but if if you're a fan of 3D like me and well-made movies, I still think this movie is good for you. 3.5 out of 5 for me. Um, obviously, it's one of those that if you like it, enjoy it, you will. If not, then eh, it's, you know, I don't think it's... I mean, did you feel like you wasted your money? Kind of. Not because... Um... Not not for not for the kids. The girls absolutely as a matter of fact, the girls are literally at the drive in right now and the double feature tonight at the drive in uh is finding Dory and the BFG. So they are already excited to go see it again. But for me, I definitely feel like um I could have gone without having seen this movie. So um, but I don't feel like, uh, but I don't feel like I was robbed. I don't feel like I'm not like angry about it or anything because it, again, it's so, it really is pretty to look at. I mean, you can't, it's, it's, you would, anybody who tries to tell you that this CGI is bad is insane. So are you, are you familiar with the story of the BFG, the book? No, at all? no, I, I'm not again, totally unfamiliar with the book, my first movie experience. So, um, and there you have it. So 3.5 <laughs> out of 5 for me. Very good. All right. Well, the movies for next week are going to be Swiss Army Man. Yes, I guess Tim has finally worn me down. Uh, Swiss Army Man, Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made, and the fundamentals of caring. Uh, the first one is in the theater, second one is VOD, and finally the last one is on Netflix. Those are the movies for next week, and I believe it is time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! Spiel on! 
Alright, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS cast. You can, of course, follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. And as always, you can always subscribe to us on on Facebook. Why would you subscribe to us on Facebook? I have no idea why you would do that. We're not even on Facebook. Uh, let's see. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Edgar Ice Burroughs, I get to say this. Death only. Renders hope futile. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>